Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we're going to be reading verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is actually a hymn, an early, early, early Christian hymn. It's not quite obvious to us because we don't speak the original language. But it's a hymn about Christ that Paul uh, works into his letter to the Colossians. So 15 through 18 is a hymn, and then 19 through 20 is an explanation. So read with me. He is, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So this is our Christmas message. So what is, what is the meaning of Christmas? Right, this is what we always ask, people ask, the meaning of Christmas Popular meanings, and this has happened since uh, you've heard the story of the Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, Tiny Tim. Uh, Christmas is one of the most popular holidays around the world, and partly it's due to that sort of Victorian Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens concept of the mean old man who's stingy. He's visited and he has a revelation, and he re- he, his eyes are open to the suffering of others. And he realizes the Christmas spirit is what? It's giving. And so he, he awakens from his dream where he's seen the past, the, the present, and the future. And he realizes that he's been selfish and now he needs to be generous. And so he, he looks outward from himself and he gives. And that's basically the meaning. If you ask people around the world, what is Christmas about? It's a season of giving. And sometimes that means forgiveness or reconciliation or family. But it's this, everyone's kind of this feeling of we're not here just by ourselves. We're here with other people and we're here for other people. And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good sentiment to have. It's, it's, it's something we can all agree with. But is that all it is? Just a season of giving. If that's all it is, then Jesus didn't need to be born. There was no need for the birth of Jesus. We, can, we don't need Jesus to be born to learn to give. So the true meaning of Christmas has to include the fact that Jesus was born as a necessary part of it, else Christ is not necessary for Christmas. So we can't just say Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, why? So as we live in a post-Christian world, a secular world, America is not a Christian nation, it's not predominantly Christian, Saying Jesus is the reason for the season is meaningless unless you explain why. So that's what we're going to look at here. Who is Jesus? You used to be able to just say Jesus is, and then people would say, okay, who is he? And we say, oh, 
Jesus is this, so that must mean this. Now people don't know who Jesus is. And the church has gotten so used to assuming it that we can't explain it. We know it, but if someone asks us to explain who Jesus is, I think a lot of us would, would stumble. We would say, well, you know, I mean, we all know. It's Jesus. And so this portion of Scripture is given to us to tell us who Jesus is and what he did, what he means to us. So the, the prophecy was that God would be with us. What does that mean? What does that look like? So three things we're going to see in this passage. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God with us, and Jesus is God for us. A alliterated outline, which I got this week, is Jesus is absolute, Jesus is the archetype, and Jesus is the author and finisher. And we're going to see all three of those things in this passage. So number one, Jesus is absolute. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the absolute. Have you noticed that things don't stay the same in this world? One day you like somebody, the next day you don't. One day someone likes you, the next day they don't. One day you can trust the government, the next day you can't. One day your job is fun, the next day it's not. One day your kids obey, the next day they don't. Or most days they don't. One day your finances are manageable, the next day they're not. One day you can trust the history that you were taught, the next day you can't. So what is, what's, this, what's this absolute that we can trust? So the Bible says, let me tell you who Jesus is, and you'll see that life is not about what we perceive or what we see as important. It's come to us. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God coming to us. And here's who Jesus is. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Jesus is absolute. He's not changing. He's fixed. Why? Because everything that changes came from him. He's the source of everything. He's the unmoved mover. He moves things. He's not moved. So when it says here, by him, all things were created that are in heaven and earth. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the source of everything. That's all-inclusive, isn't it? Sometimes it's such a big statement that we fail to grasp it. Like, oh yeah, Jesus is everything. No, everything. When we look at things that are changing, by their nature, we see that they came from something. Where did they come from? Now we say, okay, the world came from Jesus. But all the small things too. He's the source of everything in this world. He is the absolute origin. The absolute source. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, firstborn, that in all things he might have the preeminence. When you can see that Jesus is the origin, the source, when you have problems with the immediate, what do you do? You go to the source. So understanding who Jesus is gives you a fixed point of reference. When your life is a mess and when the world's a mess and when you can't grasp everything, you say, okay, okay, step back. Where's the source? Where's the fixed absolute point that doesn't change? Let's start there and work forward. If you don't place Jesus where he should be as the source, you'll constantly be trying to work backwards to him. And it doesn't work that way. 
Why was this passage given to us? So that we would start with Jesus and then go to our lives. Just like Christmas. Christmas is about giving, but it doesn't start with giving. It starts with Jesus and giving is produced. So he is the absolute source of everything. But then it's more than that. It says here in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible, the firstborn over all creation. And in verse 18, he's the head of the body of church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn does not mean what it, we think it means. It doesn't mean born. If it meant born, it would say a word that means first created. Firstborn is a status symbol. It's a title that is given to the child who has all the power. The firstborn had all the power. Firstborn of the king had all the power of the king. So what this verse is telling us is that he's not just the source and the origin of creation. He's the head of it. He's the focus of it. Everything is not just coming from him, but everything is pointing back to him. Now, the world seeks to deny that. And it uses tricks and tactics to do that. And one of the tricks the world uses is making Christmas about giving. Because then what's the focus? You giving. You receiving. But this verse says that he is the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through him and for him, including Christmas. If Christmas is about giving, then Christmas is not about Jesus. So he is the head. He's the source, but he's also the one who has the fixed focus. So when you're not sure what's true or what's not true or what should be or what shouldn't be, you know, what does this mean? What about holidays? Should we celebrate these holidays? Didn't it come from a mass, Christ's mass? Isn't it a pagan holiday? Is it Yuletide? Stop. Go back to the source. Who's in charge? Christ. Okay, if Christ is in charge, then you go back to Christmas and say, does Christmas point to Christ being the head? You see how that solves the problem? If the answer is no, then we discard Christmas. But if Christmas does point to Christ, then we keep it. So Christ is this absolute fixed point that gives us a reference for everything else in our lives. Otherwise, we're just tossed around by opinions, by our own experiences, by whatever we read about on Wikipedia. You know, are we supposed to have Christmas trees? Well, I read on Wikipedia that they come from this tradition, or I read, start with Christ and work forward. And then you say, does it point to Christ? If you don't ask that question, you've ignored this passage and said, well, I know it says he's the head and that he might have the preeminence, but I don't have time for that. I just need to figure this problem out first. I, if I figure this out first, then we can talk about Jesus. What you've done is you've raised that problem to the preeminence. You've made that the head. you made that the absolute fixed point. Yeah. And isn't it so easy to make ourselves the absolute? Everything revolves around us in our lives, doesn't it? We are the center of our own lives by nature. And so it seems natural to make everything about us. What this passage is saying is it's natural, but it's wrong. Just because it comes naturally does not make it right. Man by nature is a sinner. Man by nature always seeks to focus on himself. And so the Bible is saying, stop, use the Christmas season to focus on him who is creator and who is head. When Jesus tells you who he is, he's saying, I have every claim on your life. There are no limits. Look in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in, in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Now, what's the word fullness mean? Doesn't it mean 
everything? Fullness. It's full. There's nothing left. There's no more. But then it says all the fullness. In other words, in case you miss the impact of the word fullness, God adds all to it and says everything that could be, the, the entire divine power personality is in Christ. If it's all the fullness, then all the Godhead is in Christ, which means God the Father has no more fullness than all the fullness, correct? So if Christ has all the fullness, he is God. And that means Christ is compared to man. Now, what does the Bible say about man? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know what vanity means? Emptiness. So when this verse says, man is empty, we're like a vapor. We're here, and then we're gone. We're like grass. We, we sprout, and then we're gone. Everything we do just disappears, dust to dust. But look at Christ. He's the very opposite of empty. He's fullness. Christ is all the fullness, and he's come to man who is vanity. And so when he comes to something that's empty with fullness, we don't offer anything to Christ. We have nothing to offer to Christ. Christ offers everything to us. Amen. That means there's no conditions on what Christ can tell you. There are no conditions. If Christ is absolute, then you can't have any absolutes. You can't say, this is true, God, what do you think? It's always, Christ is absolute, so he tells me what is absolute. This is tough in our age when we, we have absolutes in our life, that sometimes make what we read in the scripture difficult to swallow. We think that love is absolute. And then we read passages in the Bible that don't seem loving. But you see what we've done? We've reversed it. This is Christ's word to us. Christ is absolute. We always conform our absolutes to him. Whatever that may be. Sexuality, work, health, family. Things that we naturally elevate to absolute. Christ smashes them. He is all the fullness. There's nothing to add to Christ, which means if you bring conditions to him, you're asking him to be less than who he is. He comes to us as the king. You remember when he came to Mary, when the angel came to Mary and said, Christ is coming and you will call his name Jesus. But whose son was it? Wasn't it Mary's son? Don't you get to name your own child? We just had a baby. We named it. No one told us what the name, the baby. But Tim Keller says, if this person, Christ, comes into your life like Mary, he's in charge. You don't name him, he names you. Christ names you. You don't decide who Jesus is. The question, who is Jesus, can only be answered by Jesus. It's not, I think Jesus is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter who you think you are. Our age wants to talk about identifying things. I identify as, or I am. No. Christ will tell you who you are. Christ tells you who he is, and he tells you who you are. That's an absolute standard. And it's a hard one, isn't it? It's so hard to conform absolutely to Christ that what happens? We always seek to do it ourselves. We always seek to identify ourselves. 
And when that's called sin, that's saying we'll define the terms. Christ says, no, I'll define the terms. And because of that, because Christ is all-powerful, the source, the creator, the origin, the absolute, when we don't conform to him, we call that sin. Now what? Christ is not going to change. He's not going to change the rules because we broke them. So now there's a problem. And so in this next part, we see that God has the answer to the problem. So if Jesus is God, and we've been separated from God, we can't get to God, then what do we need? We need God with us. And so we see in this next part, not only is Jesus God, but he's God with us. Not only is he the absolute, but he's the archetype. Now, archetype, if you don't use that word very often, it means the source for all the things that come after it, the pattern, the original thing. Look what God does. You see in this verse, in verse 20, at the end it says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the beginning it says he created everything, and then he made peace by the blood of his cross. You realize there's a gap in the middle. How did he get from being the creator in heaven to being dead on the cross? That's Christmas. Christmas brings those two things together. It brings the eternal, absolute God to a place where God can die. That's what Christmas is. It's God leaving heaven to become a man so that he could die, so that he could reconcile us. God becomes man in order to die, which means that who is Jesus? Well, he must be God. He must be absolute or he's just another person that's part of the problem. But then he must also be a man so that he can die. And that's, that's hard to reconcile. In fact, it took the church about 400 years to figure that out. We don't realize that because we're 1,500 years later. But that idea that he is fully God and fully man and one person. He's not half God, half man. He's not God and man mixed. He's not two people in one body. He's two natures, God and man, fully God, fully man, and one person. There was a guy named Leo. He lived about 450. And he sort of had been working through this problem, and he came up with a letter that the church adopted and that we still believe today. And he put it this way. It's kind of a long quote, but I think it's important. He said, Accordingly, while the distinctness of both natures and substances was preserved in Christ, and both met in one person, so while their both natures are there, lowliness was assumed by majesty, weakness by power, mortality by eternity, and in order to pay the debt of our condition, the inviolable nature was united to the passable. So that is the appropriate remedy for our ills, one and the same, mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, might from one element be capable of dying and also from another incapable. Therefore, in the entire and perfect nature of very man was born very God, whole in what, he wa in what was his, whole in what was ours. Accordingly, the same who remaining in the form of God made man was made man in the form of a servant to be transfixed with nails and to open the gates of paradise. If Jesus is not God, then he can't help you. And if Jesus is not man, then he can't help you. So he must be, therefore, God and man. God so that he has the power to save you and man so that he can die to save you. 
That is Christianity, and that is what Christmas was. When Jesus was born in a manger, something unique happened. Something that had never happened before and never will happen again. It was God with us in a physical form. That's why we sing joy to the world. That's why it was such a big deal. God had come to earth to save us, taken on the form of a man to die for us. And so what we see, if God is absolute, if Jesus is absolute, then what Jesus does is the pattern for everything. You see how that follows? If he's the creator and the absolute fixed point, then his life is a pattern for all life. Because he's the creator, he's the pattern for all creation. So what did he do? What's the story of Jesus? A man named Joseph Campbell, he's, an un, uh, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian, but he, he wrote a book called The Myth with a Thousand Faces. And he goes through all history, and he collects all the stories. Buddha, Greek, Norse mythology, and he evaluates them. And he realized that there was a pattern in all of these stories. And one of the patterns was the story of the hero. And he puts a wrote a book, and he said there's a five-stage pattern to every hero in every good story. See if you can identify this. There's a calling. The hero is called to, to a quest. Then he goes through trials to prove that he is the hero that can save them. Then he descends into darkness. He faces that trial where he comes to death. And then he emerges victorious. And then at the end of the hero's story, he returns back to the people he was to save. Think of D-Day. Why do we love the story of D-Day? It's a great story, isn't it? Soldiers called away from home to fight. They go through basic training. They're tested. They're tried. They get to the shores of, of Normandy, descend into hell, machine guns, the death. But then what? They come out the other side victorious. And in the end, America returns home victorious to ensure peace. It's a good story, isn't it? You want something a little more fictional? Lord of the Rings. I'm trying to get people on both ends of the age spectrum. Though Lord of the Rings is older than all of us here. So Frodo, the hobbit, nice peaceful life, eats a lot of food, gardens, called away by the wizard to save the world, goes through these trials where he, he fights and he he's, goes on this long journey gets to the end, goes into the volcano, to the very edge of death, collapses on the mountain, destroys the ring, comes out victorious. And then at the end, returns back. It's a good story. That's every story. Every good story has this pattern, and that's not a Christian worldview necessarily. That's, that's a scholarly view of, of heroes. Why? Why does that story keep on recurring? Why do we love it? Because Jesus set the pattern. What did Jesus do? I'm going to read you the Apostles' Creed. This is the oldest creed we have. And we see the story repeated. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There's the origin. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, called away from heaven, called to earth, for a quest, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. You see the trial? Was crucified. Dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day, 
He rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. All the stories that we've heard for thousands of years were just preparing us for this story. If Jesus is absolute before time, before creation, then all the good stories came from him. And they all point to him. We love good stories because we should love Christ. And so the story of Christmas is the story of the hero. Leaving heaven, suffering for his people, dying for his people, winning the victory and returning to his people. That's the story of Christmas, and it's because of who Christ is. But the greatest thing about this story, unlike the other stories, is that we are a part of it. So you're not a part of King Arthur's story. You're not a part of D-Day. You're not a part of Lord of the Rings. They can inspire us, but you're not a part of them. But what this says is that Christianity brings you into Christ's story in a real way. You see, Christ has not come back all the way yet, has he? He sits at the right hand of the Father, but he's returning. So we get to join in the story. Christmas is about suffering for a great cause. It's about going through trials for something worth suffering for. Jesus said it's worth coming to earth and suffering to save people. What about us? Meaningless life, life with no point, no reason to get up in the morning, no reason to do anything. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Christmas is the answer to that. Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus says, I invite you to suffer with me. Not to relax with me. Sometimes we think Christmas is about relaxing around the Christmas tree. No, Christmas is about suffering. But it's not just suffering for nothing, it's suffering for somebody. First for Christ, but then for his people. You see, in Jesus' story, everyone gets home. In Jesus' story, if you're part of his story, you'll get home. That's the great story that the heroes have is they make it. They're victorious. They return the happy ending. Jesus guarantees that. As a Christian, is your life defined by suffering? Christ's life was defined by suffering. And he calls us to join in that. There are two kinds of suffering. There's a suffering that everyone that's brought into your life that you don't choose, and there's a suffering that you choose. All of us will suffer. Health, sickness, financial, relationships. Christianity can teach us how to deal with that. But then Christianity says, but then go for more suffering. Get extra suffering. Go on an adventure. Go on a quest that puts you into a dangerous place for something. Christianity is not about sitting in a church building waiting. It's about gathering as a people around Christ, focused on Christ, and going into battle, going into something. Now, you may say, I am suffering. I don't want to add to that. Suffering is hard, isn't it? By its very nature, it's something we don't like. But what Christmas is teaching us is if you want anything worth having, you have to suffer for it. And so God will bring suffering into our lives for us. How do we deal with it? 
So if God is absolute, if Jesus is absolute, if Jesus is the archetype, if he's God with us, if he's the pattern for suffering, the final question is, how do we make it through? If we're supposed to suffer and if we do suffer, how do we make it? So he's not just the absolute, the archetype, he's also the author and finisher. When, when suffering comes into our lives, we're faced with questions. What's the point? Will it end? Does it mean anything? Why is it happening? How do I deal with it? One French philosopher, Albert Camus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950, here's his answer. Believe me, there's no such thing as great suffering, great regret, great memories. Everything is forgotten, even a great love. That's what's sad, that's what's sad about life. There's only a way of looking at things. Does that cut it? I know he won a Nobel Peace Prize, but that doesn't cut it. If everything's forgotten, then why do it? If your suffering is just going to be gone, that will crush you, won't it? If everyone's going to forget you and all the pain that you're going through, how do you make it through if there's no reason for it? You see, he didn't have anything else except for a way of looking at things. And so often that's what Christmas is. It's just a different way of looking at things. Instead of looking at suffering, you just sort of change your mind and you look at giving. Or you sort of get the Christmas spirit. But the Christmas spirit spirit doesn't carry you through suffering. Suffering is too real for just make-believe. Just pretending things are different doesn't change the pain. Christ offers something better. He says here, follow me in suffering, but look what, the, what verse 20, uh, 19, uh, 20 says. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, and the blood and cross, that's absolute suffering and death, but notice the word having made peace. It's done. When Christ calls you to suffer, it's because he's already suffered for us. Your suffering doesn't have the weight of the world on it. You don't have to make it work. This quest that you may go on, this sort of Christian life where we seek to win the lost, to fight back against the devil, you don't have to win. The pressure's off. When you speak the gospel to people, you don't have to get them to listen. He made peace. We follow Jesus not with the same burden that he carried. He made peace. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the races set before us. That may be encouraging to you, or that may be crushing to you. Like, oh, great. Everybody's watching, and I can't quit. I don't want that kind of pressure. Every... A cloud of wit. Everybody's looking at me and saying, let's see how you're going to do. Oh, you've got a problem in your life and you're a Christian? Let's watch. Now you can't quit or God won't like you. Don't fail. Don't be the hero that didn't make it. That's not Christianity and that's not Christmas. We don't carry that burden. Suffering is bearable for two things. Notice what... In verse 12, uh, Hebrews 1, it says, let us run with endurance. And in verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know why you're going to make it through suffering? Because Jesus made it through suffering, and he's going to make sure you make it. 
You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do you? Jesus does, and he's telling us right here, he made peace. He has guaranteed that your suffering will be okay. Nothing else in this world can tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, except for Jesus. And his work on the cross, his resurrection, tells you that your suffering will be okay. He made peace so you can have peace. Look unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, he calls us to endure it because he endured, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary. How do we make it through suffering? This is the practical part. Number one, you look at what Jesus did. When you are suffering physically and your body hurts and you don't know if you can continue, what do you do in that moment? You read this verse. You literally read the verse and say, look what Jesus did. And that's how God changes you. This is not an example. This is not an inspiration. You see, the difference between Jesus' story and all the other stories is the other stories inspire you. They say, look what they did. Now you try. What God says is by the power of his spirit, when you read his story, he will change you. He will give you his power. So when you are sick and about ready to give up, when you look at Jesus, you will endure. Not because you're strong. Not because you try. Not because you can do it. Not because you're a hero. Because Jesus will make sure you get through. Look to Jesus See how he was able to endure for the joy and will be able to endure. He says, for consider him. How do Christians handle suffering? We don't look at the world. We look at Jesus. Why do you suffer? Do you suffer for yourself? Do you suffer for attention? Do you suffer for guilt? Are you making, do you feel like your suffering is making up for something? That's not enough. You either suffer for Jesus or you can't make it. You either suffer for Jesus or you won't make it. Looking onto him. You see, this ver these verses were given to us so that we would stop looking at us and look at him. We would stop looking at our family and look at him. We would stop looking at Christmas and look at him. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else. He's the finisher and he's the sustainer. In verse 17 it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Are you in Christ? Then he will make sure you hold together. Christmas is God saying, you can't do it. So I'm going to come down and stand in front of you and do it for you and tell you, look at me. I'll get you through this. Let's pray.